Hey, welcome back to another episode of a podcast written by a software engineer. I've got the absolute pleasure to have Tiernan Mines himself on the show today. Tiernan, how are you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing very well. Thank you. You, Mr. The, the one way I could describe you is that you're not a man of some talent. You're a man of all talent at this point. You, I don't know what you do, but you do so you're much magic. Too, you're far too kind. Oh, man. Hopefully, yeah, I mean, you know, we'll find out something more about you throughout this whole podcast and any kind of quirky thing that, you know, people want to learn at this point. So, you know, you want to just give a brief description of what you do nowadays, what you did in the past, and sure. we can start from there. Yeah. Um, so, I, I co-founder, CEO at a company called Hello Lamppost. We're a, uh, a public engagement platform which uh, is allowing anyone to have a conversation with any object in any street. Sounds crazy, I know, but there, there is a, a proper use case to it. Um, I guess a bit, bit, bit of my background, a uh, bit eclectic, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but um, started life off in, in real estate and some uh, business strategy for, for some corporates, then, then founded a previous venture. Um, and met you at another startup, which I'm sure you'll go into as well. Uh, and then uh, co-founded Hello Lamppost uh, with with a couple of my friend co-founders. Yeah, because uh, when you when you mentioned like when we met at Hyperspace, that was such a good story. I remember that because uh, that was probably we I met you date wise specifically, or around end of March 2016, because that's when I basically wow, set foot the first time in the good, UK. Some good memory. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, it, it was quite memorable because that was like, um, I clearly just moved to Hyperspace. I moved to London for Hyperspace. Sure. And uh, Jess invited me to come hang out with the Hyperspace crew, like, a couple of days before I even started Hyperspace. So I remember that was at Queen of Hoxton, and it was Tal's birthday. Uh, and like, yeah, okay. Yeah, so, like, I remember that point when um, just meeting the crew and everything. And then, like, for some reason, I started talking to you, obviously, when we were just chilling around there. And out of nowhere, you just have this, like, really thick... Quebecois accent. And this is me, like, I've rarely stepped foot in Europe to begin with. I just come to Europe and the first, like, probably the third person I meet in London is somebody who has, like, a thicker accent than I do. When I talk, when I talk French, presumably. Yeah, I mean, no, just all the time. So, I mean, that was just one of the moments where I was just like, who is this guy? Like, ever since then, like, we've worked for a couple of years at Hyperspace together, really got to see what you do, and then, I mean, just absolutely thank you for your time for being on a show kind of thing. Yeah, thanks for having me. But I, I really want to dig, like, you know, even before starting working and everything, like, during uni or even during high school. What is high school tiered in? I think that's something, <laughs> something a lot of people want to know. Uh, okay, to sum it up in one word, uh, short. Uh, <laughs> so my, uh, my experience of growth spurt happened, happened pretty late uh, when I was at university. And, and I think I must have been, uh, I don't know five foot for the whole of high school. Um, oh my God. So, uh, Tell me so, about so, it, so rugby more was not my forte at school, it's needless to say. Um, I don't know, what was I like at school? Um, I guess sociable, uh, pretty middle of the road, grades-wise, uh, never excelled and never failed. Um, but then that never stopped you to do anything great today, so... Yeah, I guess, I, yeah, I suppose my, my interests were always outside of school. Um, Looking back, I always had, I guess, mini side hustles, like yeah. like selling black market tuck shop sweets and crisps in Lockbase, and that is such a good story <laughs> as well. Cause I mean, reselling stuff on eBay, and that's that's why you're a really good mess with everybody at this point. That's why you basically just yeah, every single person. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think it's such a it's such a crazy thing because I think the concept it's not just like a country specific because every country for some reason like during 
high school, whatever, just share some similarity, even though there's so many countries like apart. It's when you're saying like selling like these sweets, pretty sure a lot of like kids in yeah. America do that as well. The, for some reason, I was thinking about this. You know, um, during school, you remember this like the special S that people kept on drawing? Yeah, 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 the geometric S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you know that this is universal? Did you know that um, throughout schools? Yeah, throughout schools in the world. Like, okay. Somebody told me when they went to, because uh, I think they were teaching in Vietnam or something. They were like, there was a kids hanging around there, and I shit you not, the kids there were also drawing like the S. Yeah, I did not know that. Know. I did not know that. I'm sure there's some like urban myths that probably go around the world as well about where it came my, from. Yeah, or like just stories about like my friend was at the school and this happened. <laughs> there's so many urban myths that fly around. <laughs> oh my god! But it's but, always someone's friend. Yeah, that's the thing. But I would be surprised that, like, if I go up to any kids in like another country and like start drawing the six yeah, that's lines, crazy. somebody would get into it. Didn't so know think, that. And that is crazy to think about because nowadays we've got technology to get all the information across. Like, I can send you a message across the world and you'll get it. But back then, like, none of that. Yeah, pen pals, right? Letters. Oh my god, old, old school. Did you have any pen pals during school? Did they? Uh... Um, I think I did for a while after a school trip to France at some point. Uh, but then, you know, I mean, enthusiasm soon fades uh, and the letters stopped. But I mean, yeah, probably for six months or something when I was 12. Oh, have you ever wondered where that pen pal went or where they are today? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, they might, they might reach out after this. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually funny, though, because uh, my pen pal story that I clearly remember for some reason is uh, I had a pen pal from another school. So I had a teacher who used to teach at two different schools. So instead of sending mail, it, it was literally, she'll bring one of our letters to kids from the other school. So nice. it was quite convenient. Um, kept, like, I didn't really keep in touch with them, but for some reason we ended up in the same sixth form like years later. Oh, wow. And the annoying bit was that like that person recognized me and I didn't recognize <laughs> them. And I was just like, what is going on? Shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> but it's really crazy because nowadays when I go back to Montreal, like I do, like if they're around, I'll be like, yeah, man, let's go, let's go for a drink. That's just, cool. Like, That's cool. I think I, I, mine was always taken over. My cousin in Canada is the same age as me, so effectively that was my pen pal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, better, better that than nothing at that point. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty cool then. So that's mostly you. And then we could definitely dive into um, what what you do, I guess, straight out of uni at that point. So you went through the whole uni thing. And then did you ever have the time where you were just saying like, what now? Because I feel like I have this conversation yeah. once in a while. A lot of people come up and be like, what now? Yeah, I think it's probably a, I think it's probably a question on, on most kids' minds, I think. And... I don't know. I, I have thoughts on on the university system, the, the A level system, but yeah, I, I think the problem that I had, which many kids probably have, is is you know, unless you do the university thing, you're destined to fail, which is just a ridiculous thought. Uh, and you know, looking back, I think I was pretty young to be trying to decide, and it, it had experienced very little. Uh, to be trying to decide um, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life or or even what I enjoyed for work, yeah. right? I think that's the most important thing is if kids can experience um, what they enjoy, then that's what they should go after, not what, you know, a, a, an audience at school thinks they should be doing. So um, so that's basically is, is probably what led me into going to university. Um, and I chose a career path or, or a course which... Um, had a direct lead through into specific jobs and careers, okay. um, rightly or wrongly. Um, I took a gap year and, and worked the whole thing, uh, which I'm pretty thankful for because it, it made me realize what I didn't want to do, <laughs> yeah, I mean. uh, which was related to my course, but it, it, 
it yeah allowed me to see the specific job roles that I didn't want to do. Yeah, um, which was super helpful. So yeah, I ended up going to uni and doing uh, what was it construction surveying and real estate at Reading University. Amazing uni, uh, mean especially for the course, um, really well regarded. Um, but I mean, basically after first year of uni, I knew that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. Uh, but likewise, I wasn't about to go and restart all over again. Uh, I knew that it was a diverse enough course that I could get into a company somewhere and then change from there. That's the thing. I really do like the, I mean, perspective of just keeping the window open. Keeping yeah. any any step you take could just lead you into many more directions and just really figuring out what you do from there. Yeah, exactly. I spent most of uni just basically figuring out, okay, well, what is it I want to do? That's the thing. The, the, I do remember talking about this topic at somewhere where is having, what, going into uni at 17, 18, is mm. it too early to force them into deciding something? Because like from for, for your perspective of the first year and being, you try it and you don't really know what you can do. Because I personally have kind of the same mindset when I went in. I originally started in a lot of health sciences. So I did a lot of physiology and math and all that. Nowadays, like, well, I ended up switching to computer science and just did loads of computer science. Yeah, sure. So it's, I'm pretty sure it's a very common case where a lot of people just... Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and um, in some ways, the UK system doesn't have the flexibility of staying generalist and, and majoring later. Um, you, you are kind of forced to choose a path pretty early on. Yeah. When, you know, when you're in, in sixth form in high school, you've had very little exposure to many things right um including working environments so it's, it, for me it's 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 kind of a it's kind of naive to think that like kids can choose uh something and know that that's what they want to do for the rest of their life um and that's exactly what happened with me you know I, ch- I chose a path which i knew there was going to be something secure at the end of it but not really knowing in my heart of hearts that that's what I was going to enjoy to do for the rest of my life. But that kind of really helps the way is that, um, well, a lot of your your talents and ability to shine kind of thing really relies on the fact that you're able to think outside of the box because, you know, that's kind of like when you have these courses lined up, that's always like in line out of the box. But then where you really thrive, wherever I see you like just doing your thing, it's really outside of these like lines of comfort. So I guess it really just like puts you, puts your character into, you know, into motion and see what you want to do. And then like I... I mean, being, I mean, where you are at today is really just like a demonstration of you getting out of your comfort zone and just trying something new. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like any project. I think just how I see, how I see uni is that it's one of project. And if you want to have anything going along with it, just more projects. Yeah. I think, yeah. Like, like you kind of touched on, I think you're not, you're not growing unless you're constantly slightly out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's part of uni, right? Is, is, it's not just about the course as well. It's, it's brilliant at getting you outside of your comfort zone. Uh, meeting people, gaining new experiences. You know, I had many new experiences outside of my course, yeah. um, you know, including for you know, pitching for business ideas and, um, you know, running societies, those kind of soft leadership skills. Um, there's loads of other stuff outside of the course that university gives you, uh, which, are, which are brilliant. It's just, I think, some of it needs refining. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. And the thing is, like, they, every year I do think they try to make some improvements up to it. Mm. And... Even recently, they've been trying to get a lot of feedback, and like I think I'll try to do them as much as I can. But I do, I do get the bit. You know, sometimes I'm like the attachment of back of your uni. You're an alumni from uni. Sure, you want to yeah. Get your feedback and all that. Um, do they do they come out to you a lot? Where it's like even even just donations and all that. Is that yeah? Like, yeah. I mean, I'd say it's uh, more focused on donations. But, okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Like have fed back in the past about my experience and 
you know, would I recommend it to my children or to, to oh, okay. someone else and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think they are pretty proactive. Um, and, and I can't fault Reading specifically. Um, they like brilliant uni, really brilliant. And such a, such a nice camp. It's a campus uni and it's amazing. Yeah. It's kept the, the, I think it's kept the right balance between really nice open green space, close enough to the town. It feels like a student community. Yeah, it's really good. That's actually pretty sick because um, just the concept of like having being an alumni of a uni, I do know that in the Canada's and in the Americas, it's like a big thing where it's like your alma mater, which is basically, sure. I'm from this uni, like my whole, yeah. every single one of my kids got to go there and like that's a big thing of it. So I never really heard it from perspective of somebody that did the whole UK uni. System. Yeah, I think it's certainly approach. bigger in North America, um, outside of Oxbridge. Okay. I think it's not as much of a big thing that, you know, uh, you know, what are you in terms of what yeah, uni did you go to? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, outside of Oxbridge, I don't think it's as strong as it is in North America, but I, I certainly mean, understand it. Yeah, two different sides of the pond. You know, yeah, like exactly. Yeah. <laughs> One of the other things is that uh, Reading Festival. Yeah. That's massive. Was that incorporated in the lifestyle? Was it you not, just go on your own time? Or? Not really. Um, I mean, apart from the fact that the area got a lot busier when it was on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if anything... Um, if anything, there's so many other festivals going on in Reading and to do the university that um, students are students are priced out of buying tickets to Reading Festival, right? But yeah, it's definitely something that a lot of my friends went to. Um, I've been, but outside of when I was a student. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it definitely gets a lot busier. <laughs> okay, which is a good and a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. How you see it kind of thing. Because already with the ruckus of uni students. Exactly, Just kidding. Yeah. Ruckus, like uni students, uni students are perfectly fine. Like I've, Exactly, yeah. I think, yeah, re residents have to deal enough with students, let alone yeah. the uh, the festival. That's like, I haven't been, but I definitely want to check it out. I'm pretty sure what Eminem was there last year. So yeah, like a big, yeah, yeah. Big it's getting better, bigger, I think. Yeah, and it's also a good thing with these, all these um, music festivals happening, whatever. I recently read about these reports saying that the younger generation, so they call them millennials, I just think anybody just modern <laughs> nowadays, yeah. do prefer spending more time with experiences in terms of like investing into a proper asset. Have you heard about something like this where... Say that again. So nowadays, from I think it's from news all across the internet or whatever, is that instead of people being more invested as in spending their money in actual property or any kind of like right. assets, they'll spend it on experiences. So they'll yeah. spend it on music festivals, they'll spend it on traveling and they'll do that. In terms of happiness, like if, I definitely do feel like people like get so much more out of these experience than you know if I bought a asset sure. or like even like if I invest into a car, which is not really investment, but if you do spend a time to like do those kind of thing, do you find it more like prominent nowadays? Where just the trend is that everybody prefers, you know, going out to festivals, going out to yeah. I mean, yeah, really I, nice I definitely, definitely, definitely would would agree that there is a trend in more experiential spending as opposed to asset spending, but. The cause of that, I mean, probably debatable, but I mean, one one thing that comes to mind is 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 maybe because property is less less affordable, people are being less ambitious about buying property, and therefore they have more disposable income for other stuff. Right. So you know they're 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 trying to, uh, I guess, get seek more happiness in experiences and and live for the day, um, whereas maybe twenty years ago. Uh, Property was more affordable, cars were more affordable, uh, assets were more affordable, so uh, there wasn't time and or disposable income for that more experiential stuff. That's a, that's a really good way of looking at it, because I mean, like, a lot of, uh, I mean, if we're talking about tech in London, or even tech in the world at the moment, is that 
they try to facilitate these processes of well, for example, going to a music festival, you don't have to show up to a box office anymore. You don't have to yeah, wait for sure. tickets to come up. Everything is online. Well, sometimes they'll send you a bracelet and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but also, like they, these process of making stuff better and more efficient, they don't work as fast depending on different industries. So buying a house takes ages. Mm-hmm. You'll have to take like what tens, not tens of days, but like at least a couple of months before you close onto anything. As opposed to the process of back then of taking like a month to buy a music concert ticket, you get it literally instantly in your email. So you can see that the rate of being or making something available is so different between industry. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. I think um, tech is reducing friction, right? Yeah. Uh, in, in, in a lot of different sectors, in a lot of different ways. Um, it's just that, I guess, <laughs> the ticket price for a festival ticket versus a house yeah. is, 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 a, is a lot different. So consequently, I think the, the rate at which the friction can be reduced is probably a lot different, right? Well, yeah, on um, different scales. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and arguably, I don't know the answer to this, but maybe it's, um, maybe there's more focus on reducing the friction on the experiential stuff like tickets because that's where the disposable income is moving towards. Yeah. As opposed to, uh, you know, property becoming less affordable for younger people um, and therefore less people concentrating their disposable income on that. Well, that's the thing. And then, like, when you have so many options out there, is that, like, you'll take the one that's more efficient at the end of the day, where... Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. And then if we live in a world where every single one of them is efficient, then I guess that's a utopia. At the yeah, end where yeah, yeah. <laughs> anything you want to do, just, like, snap your fingers and you have basically that... Yeah, it happens table. without thinking, right? There's, a, there's actually quite a... Quite, it's not an analogy, but, like, if we're talking about efficiency, um, I, I want to bring up one example that Elon Musk brought. He talked about this where ages ago, where the friction of between you and your phone. So if you want to send a message, you have to take your phone out of your pocket, you have to unlock it, and then you have to choose your app, open the app message, type it, and then send it. I think, I don't remember what year was this, but it was while where it was like, he's trying to reduce kind of, that kind of friction, and then that's when people started speculating is that he really wants to cut off the distance between you and your phone. He wants to have some sort of implants where mm-hmm. he was saying, yeah, like, instead of having this overhead of taking all these physical action, whatever, and just, to think about it you could just send a message tell, like telepathy basically is that crazy to think that we're going to get to a point where so, there's no friction where it's so convenient I can yeah. think about it and... yeah I mean <laughs> I guess there's two sides to this right it's, yes that sounds crazy uh, but also 50 years ago if you would have said I'll be able to send a one sentence message instantly to someone on the other side of the world and they'll be able to respond instantly that would also seem crazy, yeah. right? Um, and they, they touch on this um, biomechanic, bioimplant stuff in... in uh, sorry, A Brief History of Humankind. Basically, um, goes through all of um, the history of humans, basically, in, in one book. So um, where we might have evolved from, what we've evolved from, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Then the last chapter um, is kind of what's next, what might be next. And right. it kind of like goes over three options. And, and one is um, this kind of uh, uh, biotech. So um, a combination, like integrating a... technology into our biomechanics um, or into our biology. And it's stuff, it's stuff like that is one route might be that, uh, you know, from 50 years ago to now, we've um, reduced friction uh, from sending letters and communication around yeah. the world and meet and you know but essentially gathering information we've reduced that into a handheld device right 
Um, and you know, in the next 50 years, maybe it, it goes over. Maybe in the next 50 years, that's actually fully automated where uh, oh. it's implanted so it's even easier to gather information, yeah. right? So yeah, I guess in one sense, it's, it's crazy, but you know, who knows where the technology is going to go in 50 that's years. That's the thing. It's going to be crazy for a minute, and then people are just going to get normalized, and you're just going to... Yeah. What's the other one about... I just keep on thinking about these crazy news stories that somebody implanted a ship to unlock their Tesla inside of them. Yeah, so like, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, it's, it's not major news. It doesn't make the world stop when somebody did it, but yeah. you can just see, like, it's worthy of, you know, sharing knowledge might, to see what kind of... <laughs> they might regret that when they upgrade their Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just another operation now. Though, yeah. but I just got a really good surgeon in there. But <laughs> yeah, and I, I see the, you know, I see stuff like the iWatch. It's just one small step towards that, right? It's just an added extra little convenience that's uh, reducing the friction to taking your phone out of your pocket. And that's the thing. And then what? You'll you spend the time doing other stuff. Other exactly. Being more productive and then doing stuff that you enjoy more. So yeah, I think a lot of time when people think about it nowadays that... Um, well, I mean, people talk about happiness all the time, but my thing is that we would just have more time to think about happiness, if you know what I mean. Back then, I mean, it's sad and kind of like weird to think about it, is that back then it's just because there weren't that many people talking about all these happiness, whatever, mental health and all that kind of stuff, just because people didn't have that much time to think mm. about it. They were always working and doing all that kind of stuff. Where nowadays, well, people are much more accommodating. You'll have a lot of employers being much more accommodating. Yeah, I think, I think all of this, uh, overall, really, the, the tech that we use every day is just... Uh, a funnel of information to us. It's just easier to get a lot more information. Whereas before, you know, we we're far more cut off and therefore we we're yeah. only exposed to much more local uh, information and area. Um, so we had to seek out the information, but the only information available was in relatively a hyper-local area. But now we have the world's information at our fingertips. So consequently, uh, I think that's just where the tech's going to go. Yeah. It's just reducing that friction and making it more relevant to you. Yeah, even even us just bringing up like different topics nowadays. Like, how do we even hear about them? They'd be right across the world. And we'll be talking about that. And I really do like, I mean, this direction because it really ties into your current project at the moment in terms of like all this sharing information. But if we just step back a little bit in terms of like when you came out of uni and all that, you did a couple of different roles in different, I mean, major companies as well. Didn't you do a, do a period at Tesco? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I. Um, I, I left uni to go to Tesco, uh, joined their grad scheme in their in their property arm. Um, so Tesco used to be, for context, used to be the, I think it was the second largest landowner in the UK behind the Church of England or something like that. Jesus, all right. Um, so they obviously have a, a large property arm. So I, yeah, I joined them, did the grad scheme in their, in their property department, um, which was great. Uh, I don't think I was very good at it. Uh, <laughs> so moved within the business, to, and then I joined their um, their UK business strategy team. So uh, I was essentially working directly with the UK board uh, as a team of five or six of us, um, essentially on on new projects. Right. Uh, so um, stuff like you know click and collect will have been a new project that no other competitor was doing, for example. Oh, wow. and, uh, you work on kind of strategizing that and laying out the milestones for for. You know, conceptualizing, testing, and then rolling out. Um, so yeah, I did a few projects uh, within that. Um, I didn't specifically work on Click and Collect, but that was but uh, one of the uh, projects. The yeah, ecosystem. Okay, yeah, exactly. But if you think about that, though, because I mean, like nowadays we get we take a lot of stuff for granted in terms of like Click and Collect. Everybody does it. Everybody has that. Next day delivery. Why don't we have it? Yeah, sure. Oh, you deliver food to my door. Like, how does that happen? But there's these this group. That sits behind it. Yeah, and I think the great thing, it, it's tough, right? So um, large corporations move very slowly. 
Yeah. Uh, so it's it's tough for them to remain innovative. Um, but one thing that I think I learn is is key is ideas can come from anywhere within the organization. Very you just good. have to be willing to listen. Um, and I don't know where who, who came up with the click and collect idea, but like stuff like that, it can come from from anywhere in the business. And and actually, you should be listening. As a, as a board, you should be listening to ideas coming from those who are closer to the, those activities. Yeah, the so, actual. Yeah, so click and collect would have been born from a, a friction whereby um, uh, the friction of, of people getting their groceries, right? Yeah. So uh, if that did come, presumably it did, but it did come from someone closer to the ground, then that's only testament to... Uh, how a large corporation can remain innovative and come up with those kind of competitive ideas. That's the thing. It's so that you don't stay out of touch with what's the actual use cases, the real scenarios from day to day when delivery guy, what kind of what kind of issues they encounter and what's the logistics behind it. Yeah. I think it's really important to like if you're gonna be part of the higher ups on the organization to show your support. I think just even like when you say listening to uh, the use cases of a delivery driver that's directly just showing support of what they do to begin with and I mean you're on the same team you're just trying to improve the whole process at the end yeah, of the day yeah. so yeah and that's what, that is one thing that I learned uh, is, is in order to stay innovative just like no idea is a bad idea yeah, um, I like that <laughs> yeah and so, and so yeah we couldn't we couldn't go forward with every idea uh, so our, our job was to essentially you know listen to different ideas find different ideas uh, propose them to the board and then prioritize and then and take them forward um, so yeah that, yeah huge learning curve right. huge learning curve you know I was uh, what was I kind of late teens um, early, so, early, so much responsibility early 20s yeah right, um, yeah and then and the team I was working with was super super experienced um, and I was I was probably in hindsight I was probably just a a dog's body uh, help, helping them out. <laughs> Your insight was definitely there, though. You had you had just yeah, it, so. great learnings, great learnings from that. That's the thing. So it does sound a lot of um, hit and miss kind of thing, because obviously you can't have like a success every single time. Were there any like major failures or anything that just never like it was obviously not going to be a thing? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I mean the role I, the role I was in and, and the role the track I was on within property. Uh, not so much a mistake. I just wasn't good at it. <laughs> so, what I mean. so, so I don't think I was ever destined to to be a surveyor um, or or remain within um, like surveying or, or property in any way. Um, what I did enjoy is the investment side of yeah. of the property, um, and I think that probably played tune to my business or commercial mind. That's the thing. Um, but yeah, definitely looking back, like I, I wasn't good at that job. So, uh, so I'm kind of glad that I, I, I moved within the company. I'll, I'll say I, I'll say it's more subjective about that. <laughs> it's going to be. Um, but you did mention this, or they had a like property branch to it. No, nobody really knows about that. Do you know what's the state of it today in terms of? Because uh, I, I definitely don't hear it that they do any kind of promotion about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess. As in, I, I guess it's the same as the McDonald's story, right? Is McDonald's turned from. A, a fast food chain which optimized the process to make it in order to get it quicker at a certain quality, right? Uh, but as they started growing, actually, um, I can't remember the guy's name, but actually said to Ray Kroc, you're not a fast food business, you're a property business. Okay. And that, that's, ha that's the same concept, is, is they, 
uh, well, slightly different because they're a franchise company, but yeah. you know they were buying up property and then leasing it back to the franchisee. Yeah. Okay, and then ju- and then just dictating the quality and all of the branding that they need to do. So mm-hmm. they turned from uh, a fast food chain that had a great concept in terms of optimization, and they event- eventually flipped into a, a real estate company. Um, and it's the same kind of kind of thing with with retailers. Um, uh, well, it used to be the case, I guess, is they are landowner freehold loan uh, owners, and then they're able to operate their stores that they own. Um, I guess that I wasn't that exposed to it by the time I left, but. Um, I guess it was, they had a shift in um, consumer behavior. Nice. So people doing less out of town shopping, uh, doing more convenient shopping, and therefore there was more of a refocus on small stores in towns rather than large stores out of town. Uh, so that, I know they had to have a bit of a rethink on okay. kind of the real estate they did own. They couldn't just continue um, kind of owning large estates out, out of town. That's a, that's a really good perspective. I, I don't think I've ever seen it that way in terms of like when you talk about like, for example, the McDonald's I think you where it's like, it's not, it's not fast as business. business. Yeah, I mean, it's it's stuff that's behind the scenes, I guess, right? It's, yeah. Uh... And I guess, I mean, you really need somebody to really be able to look at that and just make sense of it. And then like, you, it's so good that you, you know, just put a little layman terming everything, just making sure that everybody <laughs> gets uh, a bit of info out of that. The, the, the other thing that I do know is that like when you're talking about these major chains or major like retail stores that are prominent, the thought behind of where they put is quite significant. If you think about oh, like, yeah. I mean, Oxford Circus, you have three H&Ms right next to each other. It's not for nothing. It's not for, it's gotten to a point where, this is just my personal experience, is whenever I go to a town that I've never been to, and I kind of want to situate where the city centers are, I just find out where's the most like H&Ms, Zara's, mm-hmm. all the bigger brands. If you, if you do notice it, like if you take a city, I think I went to Salzburg in Austria, the one thing that I did was I like, if I wanted to decide where I want to stay, I'll try to find the closest like H&M, mm-hmm. where like the biggest concentration of it. And then it kind of indicates you that it's like a center. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just going off Tesco experience, yeah, they had a, they had a whole insights team who just, would look into so many different uh, metrics and data points that would influence a decision on where to locate a store. Um, but yeah, it's interesting you bring up like the H&M thing. I know that um, a lot of the flagship stores are loss making yeah but it's even though they get the footfall uh but it's a it's a it's a pr flagship thing right to be in that location just because they could probably make a profit with the brand and the you know the side effects of having these flagship like just compensate for all the other yeah. things outside that do make yeah. profit at the end what was i i had the same exact conversation but i think it was for weatherspoons or something because right when you go to weatherspoons it's outrageous how cheap it is yeah, yeah. Like, shout out to I, syracuse that were there a while ago so I got a, it was a full plate of hamburger size and everything, and then a pint for six quid. <laughs> it makes no yeah, sense. I d- yeah, I really don't. I'd love to know their business model and how their pro- <laughs> pricing works. Because uh, they, they must have some locations that are definitely more profitable than others. So I'd imagine so, yeah. yeah. I'd imagine so. But, you know, it's, 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 um, it's probably the Ryanair model is keep costs as low as possible. Right. So I know that Witherspoons, you know, don't pay for or don't have any music licenses. So if you ever listen to the music, it's never actual. It's never the actual artist, the actual song that you hear on the radio, because they don't pay for the music licenses. Yeah. So it's, it's a, a, an example of cost cutting. That's same as I, same as you know Ryanair charging for um, yeah, any kind of tiny any kind of extra. Uh, it's yeah. the same model, I guess. 
Yeah, um, if it, if you do point it out though, um, if we just talk about the music industry, not the music industry, but just the fact that you, uh, the copyrights and all that kind of stuff. I was speaking to a DJ at some point, and they're telling me if you manage to get the file into the system that they're playing on it, they could play it. So, so if you get the f- so music file if, into into so for example, if I, I'm a DJ, I'm doing a gig at somewhere, and somehow you manage to if you wanna you want me to play a song, for example, you manage to from your phone, or whatever, give me the file of a of a song that you want to play, and it gets into my machine. I could play it like perfectly legal without having any repercussions on it. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know, don't exactly know how much legality to it, but I kind of feel that's something I definitely want to dive into. Maybe I'll get you back at some point. We'll, yeah, we'll that's interesting. That. I don't know if it's true as well. Along that lines, I've, I heard some rumor that uh, Bruce Willis was suing Apple back in the day because he had put his iTunes library into his will. But technically, <laughs> technically, it was something like it was technic- some technicality that he didn't technically own that song or that file. Right. Uh, he was just leasing it off iTunes. That <laughs> so his payment was just a, a lease to have it off iTunes. Okay. So he couldn't technically put it in his will because it wasn't part of his estate. I don't know whether that was a rumor, but it's some story I heard. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm sure some people will find like will dig into that. Yeah. If you want an answer to it, that's probably something I could find out about that. So. Um, the other thing is uh, logistics-wise, though, was that um, was that a Tesco position in London? So, were, are they headquartered in London? Is what I'm trying to say. It's out. north of London, so it's yeah. in a place called Welland Garden City, uh, like Chesant. So right. it's kind of uh, get a half an hour train out of Kings Cross, north, okay, so, north yeah. just outside the M25. Yeah, yeah. I'm always fascinated with these kind of process because you have like what headquarters of Nando's. It's probably not in London. They'll probably have somewhere yeah. like, like yeah. It's just like these kind of logistics. I don't know. Here. I guess it differs. Sainsbury's HQ are like by Hoban, central London. Oh, is it? Um, I think maybe I don't know. Maybe Tesco's is slightly older and has its HQ up there, and it's never moved. Okay, I, so I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, they're comfortable over there, anyways. And did you find that the uh, the culture there was quite modern as well, or is it still pretty? Well, I mean, when I mean modern, I mean like. Open air, yeah, not you know, open offices. Yeah, it was all open offices and glass meeting rooms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's a great company to work for, and I think one of the one of the things they hired on was you know, are you are you gonna uh, fit in in a friendly manner, essentially? Right. Um, So I can't fault that you know everyone at Tesco's was friendly, um, and that is a that's a massive thing. Um, I think what wasn't a fit for me was uh, like the corporate culture. Um, yeah. And the kind of the pace at which a corporate moves. Um, that was at the time that was just kind of not a fit for me. Um, and was, I guess, maybe a, a slight element why I, was, I sought out other stuff. Well, that's the thing, because I mean, you can look at it from different ways. So from that point of view, it's like when you're a corporate and trying to keep up with the pace, it's kind of like it's a weird situation to be a big corporate and then trying to keep up with the faster trends of these uh, yeah. younger companies coming in. But then you have also these companies at a stage where they want to be more corporate as well. So you yeah, like both yeah. ends just like, you got, you, one, it's always, you know, the grass is green on the other side. But at the end of the day, you got to find what your comfort zone is and yeah. what your pace is with, I mean, within the organization or with the organization to see um, how much, I mean, how productive you are at the end and how much you can Yeah, sure, yeah. So, um, but yeah, from then on, you, you joined Hardspace for, um, for a while, which I got the absolute pleasure to meet you during there. So, <laughs> uh, you were, you were had a promo there. And I think I had, during the whole time you were there, I had an absolute blast. So, what, yeah, what, it was good. Yeah. yeah what were you doing? Yeah, so, well, I actually left Tesco, uh, uh, and started my own venture before going to Highspace, uh, cause that venture didn't work out. 
um, and then yeah, went on to Hirespace and uh, which was a great experience. Essentially, launching a new product, which is yeah. which is great, new revenue stream. Um, we still talk about it today. Just, just, uh, <laughs> just for the, the record. Good, good, <laughs> good to know. There's some sort of legacy there. Yeah. Um, but no, it's a great, great company to work for. Um, my first, I guess, experience as an employee for a, a high growth startup. Um, so that was that was great, and, and an element of freedom because it was a new product and new revenue stream, which is I, great. Yeah, I definitely want to go into that because I mean, um, I mean, you do it very, very common nowadays, where you just have. Uh, I mean, you're in a position where you got to be decisive and really just, if you have an idea, to make it make it a thing or concretize. How did that help the process of you just being more confident with any kind of decisions you make? Because a lot of times when you make a decision, you, you can always be doubtful. You can always be, uh, is this going to be a good idea? At what point do you, does it tip you a little bit over be like, this is, the level of confidence is there? What, 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 what's your thought behind any kind of decision? Like well, that? you know, there's, I guess there's a, depending on the severity of the decision, I guess, <laughs> there's an element of um, gut versus preparation. Um, and there's a balance to that. I think the gut guides you to um, the direction in which to go. Um, the decision is eventually broken down, really. You know, you, you don't make a... No one makes a big... Or you shouldn't make a big leap straight from the off, right? If you have an idea, you shouldn't just go in with two feet. Um, there's steps to it, um, and there's ways to test out and validate those ideas, yeah, um, and that's. I think that's a sensible approach. Um, break it down into smaller essentially problems. smaller problems and and validating. Um, so, you know, the, the, the promotions uh, product. Um, it wasn't just a case of yeah, let's launch it and hope it works. Yeah, uh, you know, you speak to existing customers, you validate the offering, um, you validate the price points, the um, the scale, the impact on the current business, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's, um, and you take small steps. That's actually such a, <clears throat> such a familiar thing because, uh, I mean, in engineering, we do have processes very, very similar to that when you want to test out any kind of prototypes, like even just having a flow. Uh, we set up some, some, some kind of A-B testing, sometimes we call it, where you have two different versions yeah. and you just put the one version out there and then you get some sort of response and then you compare it to other response if you haven't changed it and see how it goes with that. So. Yeah, and I guess I guess the difference, it, it's exactly the same. The only difference with, you know, business decisions, for example, is um, the outputs or test results aren't always as tangible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you can't always put exact numbers to it. Yeah. Um, which is, I guess, where the, where the gut comes in. Okay, so yeah, really being able to tie in gut feeling and just having results that like kind of backs up the whole thought. For the people who don't know um, what exactly, what was the promotions package at Harris Space? Would you be able to just give a brief... Um, uh, just, yeah, just sure. Just like a, you know, very uh, short discussion. So I, I joined Harris Space had and still has, I guess, um, a, a, a very, very good SEO presence, um, which is essentially appearing a lot on Google on the first page. Uh, and we were kind of thinking a way if there's a way to leverage that. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a lot of venues listed on uh, higher space platform as well as people visiting. Uh, so was there a way we could um, allow venues to have more exposure on the website and consequently on Google? Um, 
and we essentially packaged it up. So, um, you know, being featured on the homepage for a month, as well as in two newsletters, and as well as on our social feeds, etc., etc., would cost you X. And if you wanted an upgrade to that, it would cost you a bit more. Um, so that's that's essentially how we packaged it up, and that's kind of a simple version, but. Perfect. And then, yeah, and then, like, you know, so much thought behind it and really just making sure that uh, every everything makes sense. And um, Well, yeah, I think, like, uh, I think it was as simple as starting out with, again, break, breaking it down and validating was, yeah. you know, asking one venue would they pay whatever it was, 50 quid to be in a newsletter. And they said yes. So, okay, well, there's your first validation. And the thing is, like, you, uh, one of the things is that you really do get the uh, direct response, direct, direct answers from like venues itself. Because if you look at any problem, not just the specific case you got here, it's just that if you don't reach out to the actual people that use the product or... Um, I mean, yeah, you know. that's that number one rule uh, is, is listen to your customers, right? If, you, if, if you're not going to listen to your customers, then you're going to do something wrong with your offering somewhere down the line, yeah. right? <laughs> and so, no, nobody sets himself out to do something wrong to begin with, so... Yeah, exactly. So, so just minimize that risk by constantly listening to what your customers want. Yeah, and then um, I think the follow-up question with that would be, what is the minimum amount of users that you should... I'm, I'm just putting this out there because like, whenever I come across articles like this, there was a rule that came out, not came out, it's not a rule either. There's something that I read um, they're saying that for any kind of, if you want to get feedback from users, five would be the number. So for any any kind of thing, no matter how big it is, get five users tested and then adjust from it. Was that something that makes sense or is five not a good number? Sounds, I don't know, sounds pretty subjective. Okay. Uh, according like an to arbitrary five. Yeah, it sounds pretty subjective according to the, to the problem, I guess, or the, the some, whatever you're trying to solve. Um, you, you know, I don't know. <laughs> if, you, yeah, if, you, if you're trying to revolutionize... The healthcare sector, in some way, yeah. I, I'd argue that five people is pretty low, but it's 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 pretty subjective. Um, okay, because the way because the way I definitely saw it like that because for example when you talk about healthcare system when you when um for example when they in, implement a new process for um emergency how do you call the people that uh, show up to your emergency like the paramedics paramedics yeah so they I think recently they've changed it from actual writing physical cards patients cards to a screen and like making it digital digitally to record information. Do you need, what, a hundred or a thousand people to test it? Or do you need five of them to rework the process? Or know. the other example that I would give would be like, if um, any food delivery service come up with a new thing, do you need, because I mean, they'll they manage probably 10,000 or 100,000 users every month. Do you need that many or do you need five of them to just have an opinion on that? I don't know, I guess it's, it's, pretty, be, it's pretty subjective, right? I guess it, if, you, if you narrow it down to a very specific problem that a paramedic has, uh, they're pretty well experts in their field. Um, so I guess five paramedics saying that this solution would be useful is probably validation to test it on a wider audience. Yeah. But I wouldn't say in that particular use case, it's uh, validation to roll it out across the country. Right, true. That's a, that's a great way to point out it. Um, I mean, yeah, I definitely want to talk about your current project at the moment. That is absolutely... Interesting, especially to the aspect where uh, even previously we were talking about information being shared, but on your level, we're talking about being shared across the world. It's a very worldly project. So um, you currently have this project going on called Hello Lamppost. Mm -hmm. And um, from what I've seen of it, it's really fascinating to be able to connect to historical, um, any is anything historical that has, that's been here for ages, but in a very modern way. So 
Um, I mean, how do we use how lampposts? First of all, how, do, how does uh, yeah how does uh, the use case basically how does it go? Um, yeah, so you gave like one really good example, uh, which is kind of whole cultural historical storytelling. So uh, enabling people to be more connected to their city um, and the history of their city um, or town. Um, from a user's perspective, um, so we overlay our software onto existing infrastructure. So any public realm. So it could be a street, uh, a shopping center, an airport, rail station, whatever it is. Um, as long as it's in the public realm, we, we overlay our software and that enables anyone via SMS or Facebook Messenger or a web app link or um, a couple of other platforms uh, to awaken in inverted commas and, and speak to a particular object or statue or building. Um, and then that object responds as if you're chatting to a friend. Uh, so it will know, it will say kind of like, good to see you again, and isn't it a really nice day? Um, how have you been? Uh, let me ask you a question, like how old do you think I am? You know, for instance, if it's a statue. Uh, and then the conversation will, will continue, again, as if you're chatting to a friend. Um, so that's a, the general, I guess, user experience, or you might be at a bus stop and you might see a sign that says, you know, hey, I'm a talking bus stop. Yeah. Speak to me by texting this number, hello, bus stop number 12. Um, and it might tell you about, you know, any delays that are happening with the bus <laughs> or how people find um, the transport system in general in London or um, where have they come from. Uh, they can query uh, that object on, on similar topics. Um, so it completely varies from, from deployment to deployment, but generally um, we're used for yeah cultural and historical storytelling. Um, public engagement, so like planning consultations um, or consultations and engagement on, we've done sustainability and air quality and infrastructure changes and redevelopment and master planning, um, as well as things like wayfinding. Um, right. So it completely varies in terms of uh, the use case uh, on the deployments we've done so far, but <clears throat> generally on a, on a, on a, Blue sky level, we're, we're trying to um, humanize cities. So make cities completely interactive with the purpose of bringing the decision makers to the city um, or the landowners or whoever it is closer to the end user. So I, or I always use the analogy of, you know, Apple would never have created this metal and glass block, the iPhone, without um, considering the perspective of the end user. Yeah, um, for sure, yeah, definitely. So they would never have designed what we have today without considering the needs and wants of the end user. Whereas we see it as historically, towns and cities have been pretty much created for the most part uh, with very little consideration um, and gathering feedback and opinions from the end user, which is the citizen or the tourist. Um, so that kind of... Um, massive disconnect is what we're trying to solve and it just happens that there's many different use cases that sit within that. that that's such a really good point because I remember having these conversations about um, local tours nowadays it's I mean it's massive but it's also starting to be the bit where nobody not nobody but there are the subset of people who don't really find them as appealing like joining a local tour and all that and then there's so many options out there that will let you engage with the city that you've never been to 
but also learning a lot about it. And mm -hmm. have you had you have that kind of experience? Have you had people using your platform for that specific context in terms of they get to discover a city that they either never been to and they don't have to, I mean, rely on the local tour guide or anything like that? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, we've got one live at the moment, which is in Belfast. Uh, which is live throughout the city and along their maritime mile. So one of their kind of, I guess, key points of interest is uh, the maritime mile, which is where the Titanic was built. Um, so there's amazing amount of history to do with the Titanic at Belfast and beyond, um, which is a common problem in cities and towns where a lot of that history is kind of like confined to plaques and yeah. confined to museums. Um, so, and there's so many different uh, stories and, and historical facts that, that relate to hyper-local um, uh, areas and, and points of interest. So, yeah, along the Maritime Mile, you can go and speak to historical objects like ships and the museum. I mean, museum. you're not crazy. You're talking to shit as well. Yeah. You're actually talking to... Yeah, and, and it'll, it'll disseminate these kind of stories and historical facts, um, as well as point people to other points of interest that they should go and visit. I was going to say, yeah, if you don't have that feature, I'm pretty sure you do, but just having being able to link one to the other, that's exactly yeah, what the tour guide's yeah. guide equivalent would be solving the problem of. So um, I do think that it's an absolutely different way of looking at this kind of, it's not a problem, it's a benefit in life that you can really enjoy from, I mean. Yeah, there's, I guess there's the enjoyment factor. And then there's a the flip side of, you can have more of a voice, whether you're a tourist or a resident. And that's going to go directly to the decision makers who want your voice. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So whether, whether you're talking to a construction site about something that's happening in your area or whether you're talking as a tourist to a point of interest and you'd like uh, more uh, trails like this or, or more uh, sightseeing opportunities, um, you can, this is a platform to voice that opinion through these conversations. And nowadays, we all know that data is probably the most like valuable thing you get from any kind of project or anything. It's, and when you say voices, it's really just part of this data that's going to benefit, um, I mean, cities and towns across the world at the moment. Yeah, so. yeah. And, and, and it's all about closing that feedback. Like we don't want people's opinions also to just go into a black box. You know, we're, yeah. we're, not, we're not a data harvesting company. We're an engagement platform, right? Exactly. So it, we happen to align well that it's benefiting all parties. We want to provide those voices back to the cities and the decision makers so that they can make better informed decisions and then tell the citizens about how they've used their voices and opinions, right? <laughs> they, they are the city. The citizens are the city. The exactly, point, so yeah, exactly. It makes yeah. total sense. Um, in the logistics bit, though, you're a co-founder at Hell Lampos, you're CEO of it. How did the, um, I mean, yeah, when we say logistics, how did it start? What, what's the step that somebody want to take if you ever want to go down that path? Of? Yeah, I guess um, I'd recommend not doing it alone because I've done that in the past. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's... Um, it's a nightmare in multiple different ways. Yeah, I, mean, uh, I can imagine. Any, any kind of... for, uh, for one, you're just one pair of hands and one brain. Right. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for bouncing ideas, ideas off people. Um, I had a slightly different path um, into founding Hello Lamppost. So Hello Lamppost already exists as a concept. So my two co-founders, uh, Ben and Sam, uh, ran a design consultancy which originally created the concept of Hello Lamppost. Uh, and then I... I can't even remember how I met them, but became friends with them. And then uh, they uh, kind of asked me if I wanted to kind of co-found and see, see where it could go. Um, 
and yeah, I guess the rest of hi- rest is history. So slightly a different route to co-founding a business. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, one thing is I definitely recommend doing it with someone else or other people. Um, it it is such an enormous benefit um, in terms of sharing workload, bouncing ideas off, um, yeah. and also complementing skills. Right, so no one has every skill set possible to start a business. Well, except for me. But <laughs> <laughs> and that the one thing is that one thing that you did say is that see where it could go. That's such a really good mindset to have because a lot of things that a lot of people like disvalue their ideas or disvalue their decision right from the get-go but having this mindset of see where it could go really yep. just could drive you as a person but also anything that you touch anything you work on yeah and i guess validation of that is there's there's countless examples of incredibly well-funded businesses that have investors that have completely pivoted yeah. So it's a classic case of see where, you know, if you would have asked them when they first co-founded the business, it would have been a case of see where it can go because, you know, whatever, there's countless examples of two years down the line, they've got like loads different. of investment and they've taken a complete pivot in what it's doing. It was uh, it was a really good thing because I remember online seeing like, I don't know, somebody was working at a quite a major company and a lot of the meetings like, should we just do a completely different thing? <laughs> like you have like a major meeting, like, should we just yeah. scrap this and do all yeah. that? <laughs> but it, it is really, really good that you mentioned the bit of, you know, uh, if there's investments involved and all that kind of stuff, what would be your opinion on like bootstrapping versus raising funds? And for those who don't really know what bootstrapping is or raising funds are to begin with, bootstrapping is basically having a product that has very minimal debt, where you just start with a product that is profitable, well, try to be profitable from the beginning, and then as the company grows, you just try to maximize the profit as opposed to having bigger debt and all the revenue. As opposed to raising funds, it's where you just give a piece of the project to other outside investors or any kind of private investors and just see what kind of help they could bring in. So how do you how do you feel? Not exactly just for Lampos specifically, but just for any kind of project going on. Yeah, I guess uh, I'm going to sit on the fence slightly <laughs> uh, because it does depend on on the the, the idea or the, or the business. Um, but certainly I think if for the use for the for the example of if you're a mission driven company and there is a there is a, a a true kind of big picture purpose there i definitely recommend my preference would be to recommend sticking with bootstrapping for as long as you can mm-hmm. um, again there's countless examples of um, people raising money quickly yeah. Uh, on the basis of an idea, um, and then you know, two years down the line, uh, you know, at the beginning they thought they they were setting out on achieving a mission, uh, and then two years down the line, suddenly um, return for investors becomes priority versus actually achieving your original mission. Which I've read countless examples of that being really demoralizing for the original founders because suddenly um, they find themselves n- not. 100% working towards the mission they set out to achieve. Yeah. Um, whereas, you know, from a scalability perspective, actually raising investment can be a, can be a huge help or is a huge help. That's the thing. That's probably one of the biggest appeals. I was talking to somebody else uh, about this when they were saying, I mean, having somebody back you up in terms of not, like, not as a co-founder or anything, just having an outside party backing you up on that is definitely beneficial, but it doesn't always guarantee that you know what to do with it. Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a misconception there, which is uh, investment raised 
equals validation of the value that you're offering, yeah. which is which is completely incorrect, right? Validation of the idea and the, your idea and, and the value that you're offering is people paying for it or people using it, right? That's the true validation. Um, whereas I think there's often a misconception that suddenly you're an overnight success and that you're providing immense value because you've been well backed. Um, in, in actual fact, a lot of startups fail, as you probably know. Um, the number is like 90% of them. Yeah, the exactly. And, and most of those take investment. Um, and, you know, the majority of investment models are, you know, playing the law of averages. Yeah. So we'll invest in 10 ideas and one might come off. Well, that's usually um, how it goes. Well, if one of them is going to give you 20 times the profit, then, I mean... Yeah, exactly. So I think it's... it's, it's I'd say don't believe in the misconception that... Uh, investment is validation of your idea that's a really good advice for anybody who's trying to make a decision on that yeah go for the customers first or the users first as for as long as you can i know it's 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 tough to do but do that for as long as you can um and if you're really providing value to people uh whether you're a not-for-profit or whether you're a for-profit startup um then you know in actual fact down the line um you should find it fairly easy to, to find investment or the right investment That's because you're already you're already providing value. Yeah, and the work speaks for itself at the end, Yeah, whatever you put out there. And another really great thing that when we're talking about Hello Lampus is the expansion of it. Um, being able to even offer that outside of the UK and just, you know, even remote parts of the world that nobody's, nobody's really got access to. So what what is the process when you try to tackle a project like that? Just getting something outside of, I guess, immediate reach? How do you, how do you go about that? Um, again, we, we try to listen very, very closely to our customers who are city governments, construction companies, mm-hmm. um, shopping mall operators, um, to try and find what their priorities are, their most immediate priorities, right? So a city's priority might be, uh, we need to know m- more of what people think in terms of participatory budgeting. So what do people want to spend their taxes on? Um, so that's kind of the first thing that we, we think of when we're deploying in a new area or for a new project is um, what's the priority for uh, the partner that we're working with. Yeah. Um, and, then, and then also the next step is understanding that area. So, you know, how do people behave in their built environment? What's the climate? Does that affect whether they're going outside or inside or not? Um, what's the most commonly most commonly used uh, messaging platform, for example? Oh, yeah. Um, People in the Americas don't use WhatsApp, for example. Yeah. So that's one yeah. Of them. And that's even before we get to what's the, the the localization, what are the different dialects of language, right? Yeah. Um, so we had to build a bit into that, in, even in Belfast, which they speak English, but they have a lot of different <laughs> kind of words and dialects, Do right? They speak so, English now. Absolutely kidding. Yeah, so that's generally the the process that that, that we go is is trying to understand as much as possible before doing any doing. That's amazing because I mean, like, that's just going to be better at the end because when you have some sort of concrete evidence or concrete uh, justification on what you're going to be tackling on after, it'll be a lot less major impact towards the end of the project. Yeah, exactly. The more we can understand up front is the more impact we can give at the end. That's amazing. Um, and yeah, just last but not least, got any advice for anybody who wants to take the same road? And by the same road, I kind of mean people who wants to be more decisive or even just found their own like thoughts and putting them into action kind of thing. You got any advice for people just going down that path? Um, I'd say focus on your happiness 
um, yeah, and ignore ignore the naysayers. Um, uh, I often enjoy a line from from what Warren Buffett, um, who, for those who don't know, who it is look him up. He's basically uh, the oracle of investing of our time. Um, take it with a pinch of salt. His line because. He's like the third or fourth richest man in the world. Uh, but uh, he said, I, I am wholeheartedly lucky. Where, where he is today is down to luck. Um, you know, where he was born, who his parents are. Um, but over and above everything else, he enjoys allocating capital. He said, if I would have enjoyed, uh, you know, delivering the post or... Um, I don't know, <laughs> uh, being a pilot or uh, taking the bins out, right? Yeah. He would have done that for the rest of his life because that's what he enjoyed. It just happens that he's lucky that allocating capital is is what he enjoys and he's good at, right? So I'd say that would be the focus, is enjoy, especially, sorry, focus on, especially at an early age, what you enjoy. Because, um, again, another line was, I think Bob Dylan said, um, if you can wake up, get back from, get back to your bed, and everything in between you've enjoyed, then that's the definition of success. That's, that's amazing. Um, so definitely focus on, on on what you enjoy, not not what people are telling you to do. Um, but yeah, de- like if you if you have an idea, that's when it comes into don't listen to the naysayers from the start. Um, if you believe in something, then run with it. And I hope that's a, you know, relatable sentiment that if ever, you know, you're in that kind of position, you know, trust your gut, trust your gut and yeah. listen to what kind of... And also, yeah, uh, an added point, sorry, to talk, just to butt in there, but no, an a, add, added stuff. point, like, if you if you have an idea, um, A, run with it, but B, speak to people. Yeah. Because that's how you're going to get help. And don't be afraid to ask for help. And that's also how you're going to validate the idea or an iteration of an idea quicker is just keep speaking to people and just bouncing ideas off each other exactly yeah, yeah. So. exactly amazing Tiernan. thanks for you know joining the whole uh you know session going on over no here. worries yeah thanks where for can, having me no worries man um where can people find you do you have any do you have anything people want to follow instagram twitter or even just whole lamp post stuff uh yeah so i'm at Tiernan minds that's t-i-e-r-n-a-n minds uh, on Twitter, uh, and then the company website is www.hlp.city. That's HLP, which stands for Hello Lamppost. Amazing. Anyway, sir, I'm definitely going to have you on at some point later on. But hey, <laughs> cool. Yeah, thanks, thanks for having me.